There's a lot of reasons that doing church together is difficult. One of those reasons is that not only is everyone else in your church as messed up as you are, also all of these people happen to disagree with you in areas that are really important to your heart. And so since we're all a little messed up, we never handle these disagreements quite rightly. They're never going to handle it quite rightly, and neither are you. And yet, we've got to find a way to do church together in harmony. And that is where the Lord is going to help us today. This is part of the Lord building here in his church, in this local church, and local churches around the world, little pictures of the kingdom that his son Jesus is going to build. The Lord desires that we would come into this room, really into this gathering of people, and that others would come into this gathering and get a sense of what his son Jesus is building here. He is building, when he returns, the kingdom of heaven where everyone lives together in full peace under the lordship of a king who is good and never does anything wrong. Can you imagine the flourishing of the businesses and companies underneath this king, Jesus himself, in this kingdom that he builds, when everyone is at peace with one another? Just get a little glimpse of that glory. Well, that sense of, oh, wow, that's going to be amazing. People are meant to get a little picture of that when they come here to this community, and they see the unusual peace that exists among different kinds of people and people who disagree with each other on different issues. So we look today to the book of Romans chapter 14. Let's go ahead and turn there. It'll be a little bit before we read it together, but you can go ahead and turn there now for some help on one particular kind of disagreement. Now, to build that community of gospel peace, we need help with all kinds of disagreements. We get help with one kind here today, and that is what we call conscience issues, which I'll explain in a moment. Now, first, though, a word to any of you who may not be followers of Jesus and may be wondering, okay, I'm not part of a church. What does any of this have to do with me? My prayer for you is that you'll see in a little bit of what we talk about, this type of community that God is building here, you'll see just a little bit of how good this Jesus is, how worthy he is of you following him. There'll be a few points in the sermon today where I'll indeed call you to turn and to follow Jesus. We got to lay a lot of groundwork before we get to the actual passage. It'll be more set up today than there normally is before we get to the actual passage. Because we're talking about how the conscience works and what conscience issues are. And some of you are thinking, okay, what's a conscience? We're already talking about things that I don't have a firm definition of. Let me, let me lay the groundwork here for you before we get into what Paul actually says here. One of the gifts that God has given mankind is our conscience. Your conscience is the part of you that when you are about to do something that might be wrong, kind of churns a little bit and says, hmm, that just doesn't feel right. I, I shouldn't do that. You ever been about to do something and said, no, nope, this feels wrong. I shouldn't do it. That's your conscience speaking to you, working in your heart, making your stomach churn a little bit, however it is that it physically expresses itself, keeping you from doing something that is perhaps wrong. For God to give each one of us a conscience is a great gift and a great mercy to mankind. There are many people who could not explain why murdering another person is wrong. 
and yet they've never murdered anybody. Why is that? Well, because God gave them a conscience and they just know that that would be wrong. There are many who would have done all sorts of terrible things if it weren't for the consciences that God had given them. So you can see what a gift it is to you that God has given everyone around you a conscience to keep humanity a little more stable and that God has given you a conscience to keep you from all manner of terrible things that you might otherwise do because you don't fully, of course, yet understand the word of God. That's what a conscience is, that little part of you that just knows sometimes something is wrong and I better not do it. Now, the trouble is, when we chose to rebel against God and go in our own ways, everything about us broke, right? Our bodies are constantly broken, and our prayer request list will tell you that, right? We are a broken people. Our hearts have broken and are in constant rebellion against God, and even our consciences are not quite right. So it is possible for that little voice in you to be wrong, to be incorrect. And if mine can be wrong and yours can be wrong, and his can be wrong and hers can be wrong, then that means our consciences could be in different places and you can do something that I just feel in my heart is wrong and I could do something that you just feel in your heart is wrong. Can you see how that could create conflict in a community when a number of broken people with broken consciences come together and try to do life together? I'll give you an example. Let's say over here we've got a little girl who is raised in a home where it's a Christian home and the finances are very tightly managed. They have enough money, but the parents choose to keep a very tight philosophy. They know where every penny of their money goes. They never pay a penny more for something than they need to. Uh, they do give sometimes, but they're very careful about who they give to and how. And all through this little girl's life, they're teaching her, be careful with the money that Jesus gives you. You're a steward of what the Lord entrusts you. Don't spend more than you have to. Don't be careless with his money. We must hold on tightly to what the Lord gives us. She grows up in a house like this, becomes a young woman, and she is going to feel in her conscience like just kind of being loose and free with your finances is just wrong, right? Like that's just going to feel wrong to her. It will feel right to manage money tightly and feel wrong to manage it loosely. So that young woman is over here. We'll leave her there for a minute. Over here, we have a little boy raised in a home that is also a Christian home. And in this Christian home, there is enough money to go around, and the parents are very loose and open with it. They have seen the allure that money can have on the soul, and they have said, no, we will not cling tightly to what the Lord has given us. We will be loose and open with it. If the guy on Craigslist wants twice as much as what it's worth, we'll just give him twice. Whatever. The Lord will give more money. He provides on both ends of the ledger. If somebody wants money, we're not going to investigate and figure it out. We'll just give it to it freely. The Lord wants us to hold on to this loosely. He grows up in that kind of a home. He becomes a young man, and he's just going to feel like, in his heart, being tight with your money just isn't right. So we've got then a young woman who just feels like, in her heart, being loose with your money is wrong, and a young man who just feels like, in his heart, being tight with your money is wrong. Now let's say that these two meet, fall in love, and get married. Can you see the recipe for conflict that's coming, right? First couple of years in that house are going to be rough 
together. If they're in this church, they're going to be in my office. We're going to be working through a lot of stuff those first couple of years because she just feels that the way he lives life is wrong, and he just feels that the way she lives life is wrong. Now, fortunately, when it comes to money, the Lord gives us a lot of instruction in the Bible. So there's a lot that we could go through. We could fix both of those consciences in a number of ways. But there are some things that the Lord just leaves open. Do you have to celebrate Thanksgiving? Do you have to celebrate Christmas? There's not really a command in the Bible about that. Can you eat this? Can you eat that? There are not commands in the Bible like that. Sometimes we can have conscience disagreements where the Lord allows something, but many of us in our hearts just feel like that something would be wrong, and so we choose not to do it. That can lead a church sometimes into conflict. And that's where we get what we call a conscience issue. The Lord permits something, but some of us in our hearts just feel like it would be wrong. Our consciences are speaking in that way. That is what was going on in the first century in the church in Rome. There were in that community Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The Jewish Christians were raised under the Mosaic law. If you ever read Numbers and Leviticus and all of those rules, they were raised in that, and that's what their culture was. They were taught that these were God's ways, and for them it was God's ways. It was the law they gave to them. So they're growing up their whole lives uh, believing that the animal of a pig is unclean, and we must not eat pork because that's such a dirty animal, right? The Lord wants us to stay clean, so don't eat pork. Don't eat shellfish. Observe this holiday. Every Saturday, we rest for the whole day because it is Sabbath. We celebrate Pergamum on this day. We celebrate the Passover on this day. Their whole lives, they're going through this pattern. And all of a sudden, they come to Christ, who declares all foods clean and puts the ceremonial law aside and says, we follow, you follow me now. You have heard it was said, but I say, right? So they've got to go through this huge cultural change to follow Jesus. So they still feel like in their hearts, it would just be wrong to eat pork, right? Their whole lives, they felt like it was unclean and dirty and wrong. And it would feel like maybe what it would feel like to us to eat a cockroach or to eat a locust when we're out traveling to Africa or something. There's just a ick factor and your heart says, no, you are not supposed to eat that. There's the Jewish Christians. Gentile Christians, they are raised in a culture that is loosely immoral. You can basically do just about whatever you want. They believed that pork was delicious. In Greek culture, they looked at bacon like we look at bacon. Like they looked at pulled pork like we look at pulled pork. And so they're growing up in this culture. They come to Jesus. They say, okay, we will place ourselves under his moral commands that he gives to us. And then they're looking across the aisle at these Jewish Christians and they're saying, y'all don't eat bacon? Like, do you... Like, do you smell that pulled pork and you do not eat it? Like, what is wrong with you? Like, how, how stuck up are you guys? Like, elitist snobs that won't just eat this delicious food and trying to force us to celebrate all these holidays we don't have to celebrate. So here are the Gentiles wanting to look down on the Jewish Christians as if they were inferior, right? What, what snobs they are. Well, how stuck up these guys are. And here are the Jews wanting to despise and look down on the Gentiles as, oh, those un clean people who eat pork and who knows what else they do behind the scenes. This is a recipe for conflict in the church. And so Paul writes to them to settle this issue and help them to get along. He can help us 
to settle some conscience issues that we may have in our church and get along as well. That was a lot of setup. Here we are, Romans 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 12, where we will find help with our conscience disagreements as well. Spirit says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems the day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The words of the Lord, by which he helps us deal with our conscience and continues to build here a community of peace. So they're dealing with two conscience issues in their church. And again, they are, do we have to celebrate all these Jewish holidays? And do we have to follow the Jewish food laws? Jesus gave clear commands that all foods were clean. We do not have to celebrate the holidays anymore, but the Jewish Christians just felt like that was wrong. Their consciences were binding them more strictly than the word of God bound them. And Paul writes to those issues. He defines a weak conscience in verse 2. That's one of the terms he uses here. He says, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's one way of looking at this issue. What he calls a weak conscience here uh, is a conscience that is more strict than the word of God. God's word says you can do this much, but my conscience says you can only do this much, and so I'm a little more tightly bound by my heart than the word of God would bind me. That's what he would call a weak conscience. We might call it a strict conscience, a conscience that limits you from doing a number of things. And this is important for us because we have issues like this as well. There are things that in our church Uh, We know the Word of God does not forbid for us, but many of us would be willing to openly say, yeah, that just feels wrong to me, and so I'm not willing to do it. Uh, Two big ones that hit Baptist churches like ours a lot are alcohol and music style. And either of these things can become something that you can fight about in a Baptist church. I'll just explain both of those one at a time. Uh, When it comes to use of alcohol and drinking alcohol, Many clear commands in the scripture against drunkenness, very strictly forbidden. In fact, one of those is just two verses before today's text, back in 1313. 
let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, right? Clear prohibition there, right? Do not fall to a drunken lifestyle. That is there a prohibition against intoxicating yourself for fun or enjoyment or escape or any kind of selfish desire, and also that lifestyle of constantly doing that, clearly forbidden for that. Now, if you want to find a command outlawing all alcohol for Christians, you, you won't find it in the Bible. You can't find anything more strict than that than just the condemnation of drunkenness in the Bible. But there are many of us here, maybe half or a little more of us here, who would say, you know, if, if a waiter or waitress set down a glass of wine in front of us at the restaurant, our heart would just go, mm, no, that, that, that doesn't feel right, and so no thanks, right? This is not because you feel the scripture forces you to live this way. It's just because your heart just says, no, that doesn't feel right to me. That's your conscience doing that. It's God's gift of your conscience pulling you away from that. Now, I'm not talking here about someone who in wisdom would say something like, uh, my grandfather was an alcoholic. I imagine it's probably in my blood, and so I just choose to abstain to avoid sin, right? That's just wisdom at work. Or many others would say, you know what? You can't get drunk if you never drink a drop. And so I'm just, in wisdom, I'm choosing to abstain. That's not conscience. I'm talking about someone who would just look at it and you know what your heart feels like. Ooh, that just, that just feels wrong. That doesn't feel right to me. That's your conscience binding you even more tightly than the word of God binds you. We'll have instruction here in a moment on what to do about that when your own conscience acts that way and how to handle the other person on that divide. Because if I were to guess, there are multiple people in this room who are on each side of that conscience issue. And we've got to do church together, right? In unity. We can't let something like that divide the church. So how do we do that? We'll get instruction there. Another issue is the style of worship music, which can be fought over in Baptist churches and in other churches as well. And Sometimes is just selfishness, right? Sometimes it's just, I wanted to sound like this. You better sound like this or I'm out of here. I'm going to go to a church that sounds like I wanted to sound. Sometimes it's like that. It's not always selfishness, though. Sometimes you can have some conscience trouble about the style of music. If you grew up in the 60s and 70s and watched Mick Jagger and Led Zeppelin and all of those guys live the lives that they lived, while playing electric guitar with a certain sound and while having drums there on their stage, it's tough not to associate those sounds and instruments with the great sin of that era and in that entertainment culture. If you grew up in the 80s, it's really tough not to associate synthesizers with the materialism of the 80s. And if you grew up in a very traditional church that was also sadly, a very hypocritical and lifeless church, it can be really tough not to associate the sounds of traditional worship and holding a hymnal with that lifelessness and hypocrisy that you grew up around. So you can have in one church different people coming from different backgrounds and different leanings can kind of make our hearts say, oh, that, that doesn't feel reverent before God, right? Doing the same thing that Led Zeppelin did, that doesn't feel reverent before God, right? Doing the same thing that that terribly mean and hypocritical pianist from my own home church did, that, that just doesn't feel right. And people with these different backgrounds who have those different feelings come together 
And we got to do music one way or the other and worship, right? So we've got to learn how to get along, though we have those different conscience leanings about styles of music. If we follow the Lord's counsel here, we can get through both of those issues. And I believe it's because of his counsel here that we have gotten through those issues in the past. So I'll give you three big points about this. The first one comes not from the words in Romans 14, but the broader structure of the book of Romans. So the book of Romans is written in really two halves. First half is much bigger. And in the first half, it's just full of the glories of God. I mean, many of us cannot make it through 1 through 11 without stopping multiple times and just going, wow, like the gospel is so powerful. Jesus Christ is so amazing. That's the first part. And then the second part is a list of instructions and commands. And they're all separated by this word, therefore, that starts chapter 12. And so the idea is because Jesus and the gospel are so amazing, therefore, we ought to live this way in following him. That's because of how godliness works. When we are just floored and amazed by the gospel and by Jesus, willing to place all of our faith in him, our hearts come to a more humble place where we're willing to be corrected, we're willing to listen to Jesus' ways, we're willing to walk in his ways. And so the first point is just that we must come to issues like this amazed by the gospel and amazed by Jesus. If you were reading this letter through, by the time you got to this point, you would have stopped at chapter three and just been amazed at the diagnosis of humanity. There's no one who is righteous, no fear of God before our eyes. I would have thought, he, he died for us? Like We were the worst of the worst. And then you get through chapter four and read about Abraham's faith and how it justified him. You'd be amazed. And chapter five, how justification is through faith alone. And oh, you'd be amazed. And chapter six and seven about being dead to sin and the power the spirit of God gives us. And then chapter eight, you would read about the power he gives us in trial and how we'll make it through all this. And many of us have memorized, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come. It goes on and on. Nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're ready to just get up and shout multiple times through it. And so we have to get our hearts in that place first. Then, if you're amazed by the gospel, if you're amazed by the glory of God revealed in the gospel, then you're ready to start dealing with some of these tough issues. Then you're in a place where when you hear the Council of Romans 14, you might really listen to it because you know that this God is truly worthy of following. So the first point is just get our hearts there, right? Then we're ready to dive in to what the text really says. I'll separate it two ways. One, how do you handle your own conscience when it is more strict than the word of God is? And then two, how do you handle all these other people whose consciences disagree with yours? When it comes to your conscience, there are two commitments that the Christian needs to follow. First, because it is a gift from God and because it's designed to keep you from doing wrong things, we've got to learn to listen to our consciences. If something just feels wrong and it's not anything Jesus has commanded you to do, then then just don't do it. Even if you can't find biblical rationale for it, unless it's something Jesus tells you you must do, if it just feels wrong in your conscience, just say no and don't do it. We see this in verse 5. 
He speaks to both people. The person that esteems one day is better than another. That's the person trying to follow the Jewish calendar. While the other esteems all the days alike. That's the person who does not follow the Jewish calendar. Each one should fully be convinced in his own mind. That means no conflict between what your heart feels is wrong and what you are doing. In other words, listen to your conscience. Only exception to that being sometimes your conscience will tell you something is wrong and it's something Jesus tells you you must do, then, then you got to do it. So that means there are many of us in this room who if we could imagine ourselves with an alcoholic drink in front of us and our heart's response is to say, ooh, no. If, that's your, if your heart's doing that, the right thing to do is to say, no, just, just don't drink it. Don't violate the conscience that God gave you. That's the first principle we're looking at here. Second principle is that over time, because the Lord is saving us and making us new, our consciences must become more reliable and closer to the word of God over time. We see this earlier in chapter 12, verse 2. If you don't mind, flip back there with me. He says there, Do not be conformed to this world, so don't let your conscience be conformed to the world's conscience. It's not in the right place. But... Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So for that married couple I mentioned earlier, that each of them have strong consciences about how to manage finance, what do they each need to do? They each need to study the word of God deeply and let their consciences be informed by what Jesus teaches about finances. If any of these issues bug us and plague us, because we hold the word of God higher than our hearts, we must look to it and, as it says, discern what is the will of God. You want to bring your conscience closer and closer to what the Word of God says, so that the day comes when what this book forbids is what makes your heart turn, and what this book permits is what makes your heart delight. That's the commitment of a Christian, placing ourselves under the Lordship of the Word and not under the Lordship of our own hearts. That means somebody who is really troubled by a certain style of music and worship, what do we got to do? We just got to go to the Psalms and see the wide variety of types of worship that are offered. There are loud shouts. There are soft whispers in the Psalms. There are all manner of instruments, and we can see if we look through the whole thing. Jesus never published his list of preferred instruments and preferred sounds in worship, did he? And so as we bring our consciences closer to the word of God, as we mature over time, I know the testimony of many Christians who said, well, there was a time when I really felt like that was wrong. But gradually, as I studied the word, as I matured, as I saw Christians worshiping genuinely to whatever, the same organ I heard back home or, or that sort of more modern sound, uh, I learned that you can worship Jesus faithfully to many different sounds. And a mature Christian is willing to worship no matter what kind of skin we put on it. You know, if the content of Jesus is there, we are willing to worship him. So that's the second commitment. Bring your conscience in line to the word of God by committing yourself to reading the Bible, hearing good preaching, going to Sunday school classes, being discipled, growing in the word of God. Those are the two rules on handling your own conscience. Don't violate your conscience, but do bring it over time more and more in line with the word of God as you study the scriptures. That helps some. Now, what about all these other people whose consciences disagree with yours, right? Two rules there, and they're both in today's passage. Very simple. Number one, 
don't fight about it. And number two, don't look down on the other guy in those disagreements. Let me show you where both those are. First one's in verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but here it is, not to quarrel over opinions, right? You see that crystal clear. Don't fight about this stuff. That's what Paul is saying. There's number one. Number two is not to look down on the other guy. That's in verse three. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So you see there, if if you're on one side of one of those conscience issues, and there are many, not just the two I mentioned, uh, command from the word of God, looking at the people on the other side, you will be tempted to look down on them, right? Do not look down on them. Do not judge those people. Do not think less of them. That speaks to that tendency we all have that says, well, if that person was really smart and godly, they would agree with me, right? <laughs> That's what's going on in all of our, we want everybody else to come in line to our standards. And so we tend to look down on people who disagree with us. You can see that all over the world today. So that means for potentially that division on the alcohol issue, whatever side you are on there, you see the commands from the scripture here. When we talk about that, The burden is on you not to let those conversations turn into fights and division in the body. And the burden is on you not to look down on the other guy in that conversation who's on the other side of that conscience issue because God has welcomed them into our community. That means when it comes to worship music, don't look down on people who worship with a different sound than you do. Now, there are ways we can critique the lyrics and the tendencies and culture and things like that from the word of God. But when you get to the point that you just look down on people who are different from you, that is when we have a problem. That is when we begin to violate the word of God. Let's look next at the reasons. Why is it that Paul says this? Why should we not fight? Why should we not look down on the guy on the other side? The answer to that is in verses 10 through 12. I'll read that for you. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? And here's the reason. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, and so then each one of us will give an account to God. The reason that we don't fight and we don't judge each other on these conscience issues is ultimately because Jesus is Lord. Now, that may not be a clear connection. You may say, well, what does Jesus' lordship have to do with me caring about what somebody else feels like is right? Well, here's the connection. If you're a Christian and you're acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, that means on one hand, you are placing yourself under all of Jesus' ways, right? So at the end of verse 13, when he says no orgies, no drunkenness, no immorality, no quarrels, none of that stuff, you're saying, okay, I follow those ways. You are my Lord. I I don't do what feels right in my heart. I do what he says because he is Lord and I am not Lord. Versus to be in rebellion is to say, I will do whatever I want. He is not Lord, right? So to come under his Lordship is to hold yourself to his ways and not your ways. But there is another aspect to acknowledging Jesus' lordship. If he is your Lord, then that means for the Christian on the other side of some of these issues, he is their Lord too. And that means that they will not answer to your conscience on these issues. 
they will answer to their Lord, who is Jesus. One way to say this is that if Jesus is Lord, you are accountable to him. And if Jesus is Lord, the other guy is not accountable to you, but is accountable to Jesus. Part of submitting to Jesus' lordship is following his ways. The other part is not expecting everyone else to follow your ways, but expecting that the church would follow Jesus' ways. Or maybe you could just say that we cannot hold other people to our consciences. When we do that, we are trying to play Lord over that person who answers to Jesus alone. Yet another way to say this is that every Christian needs to obey the Bible, but not every Christian needs to obey your conscience and your heart. And so I feel like that's wrong is not enough reason to confront a fellow Christian. If you want to confront a fellow Christian, you've got to be able to open the book and say, brother, sister, our Lord says this. This is what we must do. A simple that feels wrong to me is not enough or else we are trying to play Lord over our brothers. That is why verses 10 and 4 say so clearly, don't pass judgment on the servant of another, right? They're accountable to Jesus, not to you. Who are you to judge someone else's master who accepts and approves them, right? If you're working a job together and you come alongside a new employee and you say, hey, this isn't quite how we do things, right? You're doing this this way, it actually is done that way. And they say to you, well, I just talked to the boss and he told me to do it this way. It wouldn't be right to keep confronting that guy, right? If the boss approves him, then you just got to back off from correcting what he is doing. Same is true in the church. If the Lord approves someone, we cannot disapprove him. We go too far when we're doing that. You see the difference here? The difference between someone who is violating God's word, and in that case, the word's in charge, so we go and correct them versus someone who's violating our hearts, in which case we're not their Lord and we can't go after that. That's the difference. So those are the two commands we get from there. Do not look down on the other guy. Do not quarrel about these conscience issues. That can build here a strong community. The kind of community where the standard for being accepted and being called a brother or sister is very simply, does God accept you? If God approves of you, if he has changed your life and shown through the change in your life that you are a brother, well, guess what? We do too. Why? Because of verse three at the end. We welcome them because God has welcomed them. That's the standard for being treated like a brother or a sister here at Calvary. Has God welcomed you? We don't care if you walk in all of our ways. We don't care if you adhere to all of our peculiarities. We want to know, do you follow this Jesus and has he welcomed you? And so that means it's a good sign if there is a little tension on some of these issues in a church community. If there are a number of Christians who feel one way about alcohol and a number of Christians who feel the other way, it's a good sign if in your local church both of those are represented because that means we're not casting out people who disagree with our consciences. If there are people with different tastes in music scattered throughout a congregation and sometimes you have to deal with some of those issues, that's a sign that we are welcoming everybody that Jesus welcomes. And so it's actually a blessing to have a little bit of tension in those areas. 
So that's the kind of community the Lord can build here, a community where everyone who is accepted by Jesus is accepted here. Everyone with real, genuine faith is treated like a brother or sister here. I want to close with just comparing that to what the world is experiencing out there right now. And and I hope you'll see how refreshing a church that follows these teachings is to your average lost person out on the streets and on the internet today. 20 years ago, the ethic of the world, the spirit of the age was you do you, I do me, right? Neither of us need to submit to Jesus' lordship. I'll do what I think's right. You do what you think is right, and let's just not bother each other, right? That was how we did things for a while. And that is not how the world is today. Now it's, I'll do what I think is right, and you better do what I think is right too, or else I'm going to flame you on Twitter. I'm going to try to get you fired from your job. I'm going to go after you and bully you as bad as I can. That's the sort of mess that the world is in right now the crowd seems to shift from one issue to another issue to another issue, their hearts feeling very passionate about whatever the thing right now is, gender pronouns one moment, and particular expressions of social justice one moment, and global warming one moment. Whatever they're into right now, if you don't put the right hashtags up and put the right charity logo on your profile on the internet and don't say the right things at work, just like that, you're bullied, you're shamed, might have to go talk to the HR guy at work because you're not on board with the company mission anymore. If you don't shift just like that, you're in trouble. And this is exhausting for a bunch of reasons. One of them is that the goalposts keep moving. This summer or fall, if it keeps going this way, there will be another issue that none of us are thinking about right now that will suddenly become the thing. And if you are not on board, you're ostracized out of the community. Do you feel how exhausting that would be to try to keep up and say, okay, I did the gender pronouns thing, and now what do I have to do after this? Okay, everybody still approves of me. Just constantly doing that, being judged by the world around you. Then you come here. And we say, we've only got one standard, and it never changes. See what Jesus means when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We don't move the goalposts on people. No, Jesus holds people to the same morality that he held people to 200 years ago and 500 years ago and 1,000 years ago because he is a good Lord. What the world is trying to do is exercise lordship over one another. Whatever charity and issue I feel like is really important, you had better follow it too or I am going to shame you. That's the way the world works now. We say, no, you don't have to submit to our consciences. Christians only have to follow Jesus. And if he accepts you, we will too. I just want to extend a call to you. If you are exhausted by the judgmental world we have today, if you want a better Lord who not only has standards that never change, but also offers grace and forgiveness for every mistake and sin that you commit, Jesus is the Lord that you are looking for. He is the good one you should come to. Come to him if you are heavy laden by this pharisaical world around us. His yoke is easy 
and his burden is light. Let's pray, church.